I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. The World Trade Organization was set up in 1995 to ensure that global trade flows as smoothly, predictably and freely as possible. And over the past quarter of a century, it's been doing just that, brokering trade deals, settling disputes and operating a system of trade rules among its members, who currently number 164 countries, representing 98% of all global trade. But when the coronavirus pandemic took hold, many of those members chose protectionism over openness, and the free flow of critical goods and services has slowed to a trickle. Critics accuse the WTO of being powerless in the face of such a crisis, and they see it as a relic of 20th century-style globalisation, no longer fit for purpose. Our guest this week is setting out to counter them. Dr Ngozi Okonjo-Iweala is the new head of the WTO and its first African and female leader. Her to-do list is as long as it's ambitious. At the top of the pile is ending pandemic-induced trade restrictions while staving off a full-blown trade war between its two biggest members, China and the US. Dr Ngozi is a political heavyweight who spent 25 years at the World Bank and served twice as finance minister of her native Nigeria, where she clamped down on corruption. She chaired the board of Gavi, the vaccine finance agency, and committed millions to vaccinating children in the world's poorest countries. Our editor-in-chief, Zani Mittenbedos, spoke to Dr Ngozi as part of an Economist subscriber event, and she started by asking her why, as a self-proclaimed trade outsider, she wants the top job at the WTO. You know, I've always uh, wanted to serve. My whole life has been public service. And the WTO is a very important organization. Uh, The multilateral trading system has been instrumental in helping to lift hundreds of millions out of poverty. And we have a problem of inclusion in the world today. Uh, Many developing countries are yet to benefit to the extent they should. And there's still uh, benefits for developed countries to be had. So putting all this together, trying to uh, reform the WTO and, and bring it to a, a, a position where it can truly serve people, as was written out in, in the Marrakesh Charter, setting up this organization. That's what attracted me. Um, you know, using it as an instrument uh, to help people um, create jobs, enhance living standards, and support sustainable development. Well, that is, that is, of course, all music to, the ear, to our ears at The Economist. As you know, we were founded in 1843 to fight for the cause of free trade, and we have been staunch supporters of the multilateral trading system. But you, I think, early on called yours an impossible job. What do you mean by an impossible <laughs> job? And this week, we have The Economist's Global Trade Week, and one of the panels at our conference this week was called, Is This the Last Roll of the Dice for WTO Reform? So, you know... Why is your job impossible and why is the WTO in such dire straits right now? 
Well, I, I think zoning for a, a couple of reasons. One is that the WTO has not updated its rules to 21st century standards for some time. For example, in the area of digital and e-commerce, we still don't have the rules that underpin uh, trade there. The WTO has been taking a long time to negotiate any agreements and it hasn't had a multilateral agreement negotiated for years. And part of the reason is the consensus nature of decision making at the WTO. So any one member has an equal right as any other, which is fantastic for small countries where they're usually outweighed or outnumbered. But this time, the consensus building means that any one member can stop an agreement from going forward. So these are some of the reasons that there haven't been successes. Now, you know, the, the point is that the WTO has the opportunity now to really make itself uh, felt as relevant. And I'm happy to say that this is happening. The WTO has been at the center of the issue of how do we solve the COVID-19 pandemic? So the, the trade, multilateral trade, underpinned by WTO rules has been very uh, instrumental in, in moving goods around in this pandemic. And um, we're also working actively with manufacturers of vaccines. We had a conference here two months ago to try to work with them on how can we help them monitor supply chains, uh, which is something we, we can do. You know, our members are the ones who put on export restrictions, uh, trade restrictive measures or trade facilitating measures. So working with them to make sure that their supply chains flow freely and monitor, helping them monitor supplies of raw materials. These are things we are trying to do to encourage them to put in additional capacity to increase the supply of vaccines in emerging markets and developing countries. Thirdly, we, the issue of intellectual property and know-how and transfer of technology is also one that is very live at the WTO. So we are at the center of the debate of how do we increase access to vaccines. So this is very relevant. You've raised a huge amount there, and I hope we, we cover a lot of that during, the, during this conversation. But let's start with the pandemic, because you're absolutely right. The pandemic has been an, a huge area where the WTO can and should play a role. But I think when COVID first struck, some 80 countries implemented export bans on medicines and, and PPE. You published in your trade monitoring report, you warned that though those trade restrictions are coming down, too many obstacles still exist to hamper the free flow of medical inputs and critical supplies. You know, isn't that worrying that if you have, during a crisis, basically countries ignoring the WTO's rules, that it really isn't centrally relevant? No, absolutely not, uh, Zani, because there's no other place in the world where you can, you can bring the world together and say, look, we need to act in concert because we have an issue of the global commons pandemic and we need to make sure that we help to solve it. There's no other place but the WTO. And I, and I have to say, members implemented more trade facilitating measures, trying to do away with tariffs and customs duties and bureaucracy so goods could move around more easily, even food, which is not something you discount in a crisis that we had food for net food importing, importing nations. Nevertheless, you know, as they say, like Oliver Twist, you always want more. So I always want more. We started the pandemic with 109 restrictive measures. We are down to 53. Uh, but for me, 53 is still too many, and we need to try and get those down. 
and our members need to open up so that these raw materials are not restricted in any way and that also outputs can move. So we're as relevant as ever. So the question of vaccines and getting broad-based access to vaccines is probably the single most pressing issue of the moment. I mean, we are increasingly seeing that uneven vaccination rates is, is dividing the world into you know, the jabs and the jab nots. And you've called equitable access to vaccines, I think, the, quote, moral and economic issue of our time. So what do you think is the mm. greatest practical barrier that is preventing that equitable access? The key issue is the supply scarcity in the world, and that has to be solved. And to solve that, you need to increase supply. So how do we do that? I think you have to bring in more manufacturing capacity. The world just did not invest in enough manufacturing capacity. Remember, Zani, that we normally produce about maximum 5 billion doses of vaccines uh, a year. Now we need 10, we need even more for if we go for boosters. So if you continue with this business of trying to uh, improve manufacturing capacity, transfer know-how and technology and resolve the issue of what we do about IP. This will also help to bring more vaccine into production and, and eventually distribution. Because the situation in which we have, let's say, take Africa, my continent, for example, 3.6 doses per 100 people compared to 78 doses per 100 people in developed countries. It's just not tenable. It's not about helping Africa or helping low-income countries or helping. It's about our common good, because these variants will come back, you know, if people are not vaccinated and they'll come and hunt those who have already been vaccinated, as we are seeing already. Really important. And we'll get into how to boost supply in those countries in a second. But firstly, just in terms of, of the supply of existing vaccines, you know, you wrote before the recent G7 summit, you called on leaders for a stepped up coordinated strategy. Uh, were you satisfied with the billion doses that they promised? I mean, I, I think the WHO has said we need 13 billion. So was this, a, was this much too small or were you satisfied with, with the rich world's response? Yeah, Zani, well, you, you, I think you're referring to the opinion piece that uh, the four of us from the heads of the IMF, the WTO, the WHO and the World Bank did, talking about $50 billion to help vaccinate 40% of people in developing countries this year, 60% next year. And that would really generate $9 trillion in GDP with an extra trillion in taxes in developed countries. So we think that this is a, a very good uh, way to go. Now, the billion doses from the G7 is very welcome. Uh, every bit helps. But of course, we don't think it's enough. And we hope that we are going to see more action uh, from members of the G7. Uh, they've come forward uh, also to talk about investing in, in manufacturing capacity in, in developing countries. The EU has set aside a billion euros for that. So that's very welcome. So both donate more doses because what we have now is not enough. More importantly, Zani, even the donated ones are not being distributed yet. So the issue is not receiving donations three months from now, six months from now. It's now. It's now that we need to get the jabs in people's arms before those variants spread. So time is of the essence. 
And now let's turn to the question of intellectual property. What are your views on waiving the TRIPS agreement, which um, for those of you who are are not complete trade wonks, is the agreement within the WTO's rules which covers intellectual property, uh, including for drugs. Do you think intellectual property rules should be waived? Zani, I'm I'm afraid I'm going to have to disappoint you and the listeners because just look at it from my side. I have members, some of who believe in waiving intellectual property, that this is what is critical to having increased access to vaccines. I have others who question it. So my role is to bring them together, not to take sides with one or the other. So that's what I'm trying to do. Some good news is that finally members are beginning to engage in text-based negotiations. So I'm hopeful that some pragmatic solution which allows developing countries almost automatic access to uh, being able to manufacture vaccines whilst at the same time incentivizing research and development can be found. I know the solution is there, but it's up to members to, to come to it, and I hope they will. I'm in a hurry. I would love to see them do something by July because we are talking about lives. Is it fair to say that the, that the question of intellectual property is somehow is actually a sort of ideological one as much as a practical one. Yes, Zani, I think there's some truth in what you say. And from the proponents, they look at what happened during the HIV AIDS epidemic years ago, where it took 10 years before and people were dying before people had access to HIV generic drugs that they could afford. So it's a question in a way of principle of, of look, when there's a, a, an emergency of global health proportions, there should be access. All people should have access so that nobody should die when we have the technology to save them. You look at the other side and those who question say, look, you know, there have been years spent and a great deal of resources, uh, you know, trying to uh, fund innovation and research and development. If we don't do that, then the next pandemic, nobody may have an answer to it and we may all die. And for that reason, and you know, on both sides, you have to look at both arguments which have truth in them. And that is why I think that if members sit down and see each other's point of view, they can actually come up with an answer to, with a solution that takes account of both problems. But there are questions of principles, of lives, of philosophy behind it. Let's move to another equally big uh, challenge, which is how the WTO navigates a world where the two, the aspirant superpower of China and the the current superpower of the US have an increasingly antagonistic relationship. I mean, that rivalry is setting the stage for for the next few decades of the 21st century. And it seems to me that the world is heading into economic blocks, both oriented around those rival powers. How does that fit with the multilateral philosophy of the WTO? If if China and the US are locked in a trade war, what can the WTO do to temper the hostility? Well, you know, that's precisely why the WTO was created, to avoid the trade wars we used to see in centuries past. And it's uh, largely been able to do that because at least countries know that when they have a problem, there's a place they can bring a dispute. So the WTO is very relevant. We need to reform and revive our dispute appellate body and our dispute settlement system to make it uh, fully functional. That being said, one very uh, tricky trade issue that is bedeviling the situation right now is the feeling 
on the parts of some members, the US, the EU and others, that the level playing field is no longer working because there are worries about the subsidies of uh, state-owned enterprises in China, that this is distortionary and, and not good for competition. On the other hand, China also worries and talks about what we call domestic support, agricultural subsidies. So these are level playing field issues that the WTO can and should uh, attempt to solve, to help members come around to find solutions. How do we do it? We've joined with the IMF, the World Bank and OECD to launch a study on, on level playing field issues across the board to put facts on the table. In conjunction with that, we've just launched at the WTO our own study on industrial subsidies. It's very important to have facts on the table for members to see what, what are the negative spillovers of these uh, uh, subsidy policies. And then once we have those, we can look at our rules. Are they fit for purpose for today's environment? And when you discuss with the US and indeed with China, is your sense that both parties believe in the WTO as an institution? Because the previous US administration really didn't. I mean, there were there was kind of constant threats to leave the World Trade Organization. I think the Trump team really didn't think it was particularly effective or useful and had probably hurt America. Is the is the Biden administration more clearly committed to the WTO? And is the same true also of, of, of Xi Jinping and the Chinese government? Well, let me say this, that on both sides of the aisle, both for Republicans and Democrats, there have been issues and problems with the WTO for some time. So it's not purely a Trump era issue. And they do make some very valid points that we need to look at and say, what are the issues they are putting on the table and how do we listen to that and solve those issues? But it is very, very true that it's easier to have dialogue now. And I want to tell you one thing. The United States has never stopped paying its uh, dues at the WTO. So even through the Trump time, the budget, uh, the allocation was paid faithfully. So I think that really speaks to the fact that they know the WTO is very, very important. There is no head of state I know of now or prime minister or president in the world who doesn't think the WTO is important and, and wants it reformed. And I've spoken to quite a few of them. They are all encouraging. They all want to see this organization work well. Ditto for China. Uh, China, the same. China also has issues. Every member has, has issues, but all realize that if the WTO did not exist, you would have to invent it because this is the only place you can solve certain problems related to trade. Well, that brings us to a question from Gabe, one of our listeners, who asks you, what can the WTO do when a country like China does not play by the rules? Well, I think one of the things we are trying to do for China or any other member that it seems they're not playing by the rules is to try to see, to get evidence, very concrete facts on the table about where it's hurting, where the negative spillovers are, not just on developed countries, by the way, but the emerging markets that are also complaining of the lack of competition in certain areas. With that, we can then see our rules fit for purpose. We do have rules against these kinds of subsidies, but are they up to scratch in dealing with the new sophisticated way of, 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 of having subsidies? We are even worrying a little bit about the very wonderful stimulus that has led to a fast economic recovery. 
So all of these things, the approach is put facts on the table, look, match them up with the rules. And if our rules are not up to date, we change them. We update them. That is part of the reform. Let me follow up on, on your comment on, on the stimulus and particularly the U.S. stimulus, because quite a lot of uh, President Biden's stimulus is designed to be spent on goods and services produced in America. Buy American is an enormous part of Bidenism, if you will. Do you think that Buy America will end up being against WTO rules? Well, we'll have to see, Zani. We have to monitor it. I'm sure that uh, the Biden administration does not want to, to knowingly go against the WTO rules. So knowingly or knowingly. So we'll monitor it. We'll see what it is. We'll match it up to our rules and we'll discuss with them when the time comes. I mean, for instance, we've talked about the DPA, the Defense Production Act, and what that means for supply chains. Uh, these are not easy conversations to have, but we've had them with the U.S. Trade Representative, and they've opened up and allowed some of these supplies to move to, to India and other places. Just pushing that a bit more deeply, it seems to me that it, it's not just the U.S. Every country is looking towards you know, critical supply chains at home, boosting domestic production. It's, it's very much the fashion now. Industrial policy is back in fashion. Isn't this a sort of intellectual shift across many countries that really is at odds with the philosophy that underpins the World Trade Organization, which is of similar rules for everybody. I mean, do, you, do you find that you are now talking to leaders in an environment where they are just in a different frame of mind from where they might have been 10, 15 years ago? I agree completely. That's the truth. There has been a shift towards protectionism. There is a populism. Uh, and this is partly due to what uh, technology along with globalization, uh, has delivered. Whilst it's lifted hundreds of millions out of poverty, it's also left some people behind. And, you know, for instance, in certain areas of the U.S. and other parts of the world, if you don't have active labor market policies, then you're not able going to correct those market failures. And that leads to a lot of people who feel uh, left behind. And that leads to populism, which leads to protectionism. But I'll give you one, one, one interesting fact. I think Kenston Young did a survey of CEOs uh, in April 2020 about their plans for reshoring or nearshoring. And 83% of them said at the time, yes, that they were actively thinking of how to bring supply chains, near, make them more domestic, bring them, bring them nearer home. They've repeated the survey in April of 2021, and that number is down to the 20s. And that is very comforting, given the fact that many people think this would dramatically change, given the pandemic. So, so let's see how it goes. <laughs> it's, it's so refreshing to hear that, to hear you say that it is important to have an effective functioning multilateral system. It's something that I hear too little nowadays. But let, this has given rise to a couple of terrific questions uh, from our subscribers. One, an anonymous one says, some analysts think, say there is deglobalization, possibly so that there would be three key trade regions, North America, Europe and Asia, which will turn inward. The question then is, what does that mean for Africa? What is your view for a region like Africa if the world does split into trading blocks? Where does Africa sit in that? People say, you know, there's a deglobalization. I think what we are looking at, at or we need is a re-globalization. Africa has not really been as well integrated into the world trading system as it should be. The share of trade is 2 to 3% of world trade, and that has stagnated for some time. 
I know the heydays of globalization are, are gone. You know, in the 90s to mid 2000s, we had an uh, you know enormous uh, impact of globalization as we uh, integrated China, the, the East European countries, India and others into the system. All that is now done but we can reintegrate those who were left behind. And that is the way that I think we should, we should go. And all those countries are members here, all the African countries. And guess what? They have also agreed to make, do something which is enormously helpful to the continent. This is the African continental free trade area, the one with the largest number of countries. This will open up borders uh, within the continent. And with that, you have a market of 1.3 billion. So, so let's talk about how we create that better kind of globalization, how we, how we deal with the disturbances. And I think one of the big um, sort of arguments made against globalization is that it has been unfair, that it has failed workers, that somehow it has, it has helped capital, it has not helped workers. Is that fair? Is it true that globalization has failed workers? Or is it actually just that the proponents of globalization didn't make the case clearly and well enough? Is it a PR job or is it a substantive shortcoming? No, I think it's a substantive shortcoming in several senses. But don't forget the role of technology, Zani. When, as a result of technology, you have some industries that are no longer uh, labor intensive, but are now capital intensive. You know, in theory, people should move away to where there are new jobs being created. But it doesn't happen like that. There are market failures. People stay where they are for cultural reasons. Without retraining and without attracting new industries, then you have people who are left behind. If we don't learn how to deal with the inequalities we see now within countries, in the rich countries, as well as between countries, I think we will continue to have that bashing of globalization. And I think policymakers really need to rise up with the kind of policies that will change things. And that is this change in, in globalization that you and I are talking about now. What, what should it look like? So the, the new Biden administration, U.S. trade representative, Catherine Tai, she talks about a worker-centered trade policy. Um, she actually says that the WTO doesn't adequately hear from workers. Do you agree that we need a worker-centered trade policy? And, and, and what would that really entail? I think we need a policy, trade policy that is about people. I will tell you one thing. I'll go back to what I said in the beginning. The Marrakesh preamble to this WTO agreement set out three purposes. Enhance living standards, create jobs, and support sustainable development. When you look at all of this, what does it say? It's about people and our planet. And it's so relevant today. I think what happened has happened over time is the WTO has been turned into a negotiating forum for trade lawyers. I don't have anything against trade lawyers, but I think over time it's been forgotten that the negotiations are supposed to be about people. If you're here to deliver for people, you will not take 20 years to negotiate an agreement about fisheries and livelihoods. If you're about the planet, you will not take 20 years to know that your fish stocks are going down or to negotiate an agriculture. So I think people were left out of the equation. That's why I took this job. That is you know, music to my ears. And as someone who long ago in my career used to cover trade policy, I completely attest to the fact that there are a huge number of trade lawyers running trade policy. But 
But let's focus on the climate, which you raised, because I think that's a really important and interesting area. You know, the EU and other countries are exploring using border adjustment tariffs against high polluting countries. Do you think that's a good idea? Do you think the WTO can and should play a big role in the climate agenda going forward? Let me start with that. Yes. I think that trade and climate uh, is absolutely essential for the WTO to play a role because I believe that, uh, you know, net zero by 2050 is important for our planet. And we need to do everything we can reasonably to reduce carbon emissions. Now, in doing this, we have to recognize that not every country is in the same place. So we need to have just transitions for poor countries, for developing countries. They cannot go at the same pace. Africa is 3% of global carbon emissions. So when you're talking of contributing, you need to have that. But all that being said, I think we need to look at trade and see the areas where trade can contribute. Let me say this, the most important thing that would have been good is to have a global carbon price. But that is not happening. What we have now is 64 different prices from 64 jurisdictions, ranging from less than a dollar a ton in Ukraine to about $130 a ton in Sweden. And then, and now the European Union wants to do, do the CBAM, the carbon adjustment mechanism. We haven't seen the design yet, so I can't tell you whether or not it would be acceptable to members. So there's quite a lot of work to be done. And I think the EU is putting and has said it will put time into making sure that this is designed in a way that is compatible. One more subject that I briefly wanted to touch on, because the third element of 21st century globalization, if you will, is that the nature of trade has changed so radically. It's Instead of goods now, it's increasingly that we're trading services, digital services in particular. These are areas where, and I'm going to exaggerate slightly, but basically there are hardly any WTO rules. It's not really been in your purview. How important is it that you start to have rules in those areas to A, prevent you becoming less relevant, but B, to shape the global economy going forward? I think, Zani, it's absolutely crucial. I mean, we have uh, trading goods is growing at a decreasing pace, whereas trading services is rising. So it's very vital that we, we look at the area of services, we look at the area of digital, and we have proper rules that underpin that. The good news coming is that we have an e-commerce negotiations going on with about 83 members involved, and they hope to bring in many more. That looks at uh, the rules that should underpin digital trade and underpin e-commerce. There are very tricky issues like cross-border data flows, digital taxes, how you govern those. You have developing countries and emerging markets who don't have a strong regulatory regime, so they're a bit reluctant to go into agreements where they are not sure whether this will come back to haunt them. So we have those sorts of issues. But that being said, they are really moving on at a very reasonable pace. Listening to you go through that area of topics, no one could accuse you of lacking ambition. I mean, from climate to the post-pandemic to the digital, you're, you, you have a huge to-do list. And I guess I have to then ask you, you know, are you, are you trying to do too much? And what are, let's say, the top two priorities that you are really determined to get done in your term? Within that list, Zani, and it, now you understand why I like the job and went for it, because it's so exciting. There's so much potential. But in that list, I have what I call deliverables for this year. 
And we're looking top priorities, trade and health. Can we get a ministerial declaration that says what WTO members should do in a pandemic now and for the future so we don't have to negotiate over it again? Two, after trade and health is the fishery subsidies. Those are my top two priorities. So the deliverables are narrow. This year, they are not, they're very difficult. I will not deny that. Getting to agreement in any of these areas is going, is a tall order, but we are pushing. And maybe we can get trade and health because it's of the moment. If we make some advances in women and trade, another area I didn't even mention, <laughs> you know, this would be also very good. <laughs> well, that would so, be a huge amount for one year. And I, but I have a suspicion that if anybody can get any of it done, it is you. But I am not going to end this without <laughs> one completely unrelated question, which is that I know, given, given the ambition of what you want to do, I imagine that you don't have a lot of spare time. But I do know that you are a prolific reader. So what are you reading right now? Let me tell you what I'm reading. You know, I don't have much time now to read anything. But I'll share with you, I'm reading my son's book of poetry. So my second son is about to publish a book of poems and I'm going through them. And some of them are very inspirational for me. I hope the book will come out in the next few weeks. And uh, you know, they give me hope, they inspire me. Some of them are about love, some are about life, some are about, uh, you know, discrimination, some are about the future. It, 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 you know, from a young man, you know, this is what I look at when I want to see hope. Dr Ngozi, thank you very, very much indeed. Thank you, Zani. It was fun. <laughs> you are a tough questioner, but it was fun. Our thanks to Ngozi Okonjo-Iwela and to Zani Minton-Bedes there. And we'd love to know what you're reading for Respite at the moment. Is it poetry? Is it airport fiction? Or the latest World Trade Statistical Review? I'm in for that. Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us your thoughts on that and anything else from this interview at Economist Radio. This conversation was part of a subscriber event run by The Economist, and it's one of the many we've put together with global movers and shakers. To get exclusive access to all of our events and to our excellent journalism, why not become a subscriber today? For your best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producers were Pete Norton and Alicia Burrell. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. <laughs>